Hello, and welcome to Label Sessions Presents. Label Sessions is a global platform that connects you to the best advice for the most interesting people. Whether you want advice, mentoring, or ideas. I'm Josh Nix, content producer for Label Sessions. And in this episode, Maxine Mackey of Label Sessions talks to Josephine Ingolia. Josephine is a leader in the beauty industry, previously managing a cosmetics giant, MAC. And now, Director of Beauty Strategy and Innovation at Saks Fifth Avenue, based in New York. When it comes to evolving the beauty sector, Josephine is a visionary. Over to her and Maxine. Thank you so much for kind of joining us and welcome to the Label Sessions Presents podcast. Um, maybe to kick things off, you, could you introduce yourself to our audience, please, and, and maybe share what you're kind of best known for? My name is Josephine Ngolia, and I have been in the beauty industry for over 20 years. Um, I would say at this point, I'm a uh, beauty industry executive. Um, I've spent um, the last 10 years in leadership roles at both um, Mac Cosmetics, uh, which many of you may know, um, part of I say lot of companies, and um, most recently at Saks um, Fifth Avenue um, in a director uh, beauty role overseeing like the whole beauty department for the U.S. and Canada. Um, so I'm born as a makeup artist it, it really um at the counter on the sales floor um where you know we all love to spend our time and shop and play um so my heart has remained there all these years as i've gone through my many various positions um and even in different continents so i've worked both in europe and in the us um for mac so i've gotten to experience you know how beauty um uh evolves and it's kind of like uh uh, interacted with like from different types of uh, cultures so that's been really great but yeah so that's me I'm a beauty executive or beauty junkie probably at this point um, but in retail altogether you know where it's, it's service it's retail it's beauty it's, you know at the end at the core it's just you know having someone feel great beauty I, brands and their identity and retail spaces I think is a really kind of a interesting world and one that you've got lots of experience in so I'd love to kind of delve into that and then getting to I guess the heart of what makes a great kind of a creative and and, and retail team um, so you mentioned you'd worked at both Matt and at Saks um, and I think you had this amazing role at Saks too of beauty strategy and innovation and um, and you've seen both sides, I think, of having to address this delicate balance of being a brand and then being a retail space, like having a its own identity and then kind of a making space for kind of a sub brands. And I'm thinking about, and I think there's so many parallels for some of our kind of a label sessions, um, label mates and um, people that follow us with this kind of a brand and sub brand kind of a identity and sometimes the crises that can come from that. So maybe let me kick off with what advice would you give to companies who want to protect their vision while kind of a navigating like say a wider space that they're inhabiting or a parent brand? What I found honestly in my time there, because you're right, it, there is this really kind of unspoken language, I would say that it's like I, at Mac, we were just like, it was very brand, it was brand identity and like. I never really, um, I used to go at everything like we're Mac, you know, this is how we want things. And it's funny because at that time at Mac, 
it was almost like wherever you were, whatever retailer you were in, you actually had the luxury of being able to do that. But that's not the reality for many brands, right? Um, and I think emerging brands, newer um, brands that are really kind of um, maybe that have been around for a while that are um, kind of a staple brands, but maybe they're not like a premier partner, you know, like they, they, they kind of have to fight for that identity in a sense. Right. So being at Mac, I, I really learned and being at Saks now, I really learned that. So when I went to Saks, um, initially I, I approached many things with like, oh, I mean, you know, I got my hand slapped a couple of times and not going to lie because it was like, we don't do that. We're Saks. We don't do that. We're Saks. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't I don't understand, like, if, um, you know, Creed is coming to me um, with a wish uh, that seems to be great because they want to, you know, blow up the visual and they want to, you know, enhance brand awareness. And, you know, if they that'll increase sales for them, that'll increase sales for me. It's it's wonderful. You know, it's it's causing animation etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's like we don't do that we're sacks you know and i'm like i don't understand no that's too commercial or uh and i'm like i don't understand so i think um what i learned though was that communication is actually the key to bridge the gap right so my role then became i, I because i was just like wait a minute i'm here and basically i don't want to say mothering but you know I'm a mom so like everything you're mothering every all the time right so I, I like I'm caring for right like all of these brand partners right so everything from beauty to skincare to fragrance like we dealt with them all and you know I really wanted to be a good partner so my um I I took it very much personally to say okay well how do I be a good partner I don't want to be the person that's always saying no you know, because I used to hear that a lot too. Oh, everyone always says no there. You know, like, no, we can't do this. And no, we can't do that. And I'm like, I don't say no. I don't probably say no anyway. I say yes all the time. But um, I'm like, I'm going to find a solution for you. Like, let's see what we can do. So a lot of it was me asking questions internally, really just to understand because my I was pretty new. And really just to, you kind of have to like understand like as an executive when you're new somewhere, you really kind of have to put a fast forward on culture, right? So, and and especially in today's world where we're a little more remote than we were years ago, that you you really need to do a little bit more like footwork to, to understand the culture. And I think it's okay to, you know, insert yourself in meetings or shadow people or on a touch base, ask culture-based questions instead of like, you know, um, uh, logistic questions, you know, like, really just to understand it and set yourself up for success in a way where you're you're letting people know like I'm doing this so I can understand more so that I can make you know um I can make the right decisions for us as a company right so I think once I started doing that and understanding that that really was how I would approach my vendors and my partners it was really just to give them insight and I would give them a lot of um time talking a lot about what Saks does, what we stand for, because at the end of the day, you know, it's really high touch. It's about exclusivity. Um, it's about the client journey. 
It's about, you know, how the client feels. It is about a little bit keeping um, the experience and the overall look and feel of everything a little bit more precious, right? So, um, you know, how do we really do that? And 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 getting the vendor to understand that that's, that's what we want. We both want the same thing. I think always letting them know we, we do want to grow your brand awareness. Let's do it in the Saks way. Like, what's the Saks way? And even as a vendor, not even just to talk about Saks, but I'm, I'm thinking from a vendor point of view, whatever, whatever retailer you're in, right? Whether you're in a Boots or you're in, you know, or you're in a Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom's or Harrods or wherever you are. If you're there really understanding the vendor way um, and, and, and creating that relationship with the vendor that makes sense and, and doing things within their paradigms, right? Um, it, it's it's going to be really important, that communication, because that, that willingness to understand is really going to help you as a vendor um, kind of get ahead, right? And, and it really also, what it does is it helps you then personalize even your vendor, even your retailer experience, right? So it doesn't feel so vanilla across the board. So it's really about the communication for both parties around like these are our these are our kind of a baseline requirements like we have to do within this. So I think it's almost like I think it's really similar in a way to even kind of a B two B marketing and Absolutely, things like that. It's yeah. around like understanding what can't change and and where there is wiggle room. How does the data work in a retail environment around like customer journey, like basket size information and all those insights? Is that something that's typically like shared and showcased like within say, I'm thinking like within the beauty team of the retailer and the vendors? Yes, it is shared. Depends on the retail, I'll be honest with you. Some retailers don't have those functions anymore, you know, um, and some retailers still do. I come from a, a space where basket size, AUS, IPT, traffic, all of that, like there are certain like at counter on the floor KPIs that are extremely important. I would say the more luxury retailer, um, I feel they they don't focus as much on that, you know, because their, their focus is more um, clienteling. So their KPIs kind of change a little bit. They feel that they, they, their, their KPIs and their, their functions on the computer become much more um, uh, dynamic in the client system, right? So how many clients do I have? How many times did they return? What was their average spend? That kind of stuff. Um, who do I have to reach out to? More on like a what the advisor has to do type of thing, but... Um, sometimes they're, they're lacking recently in like the KPI of the cut, the advisor did all of this work, but like, what, what was the, the end result? Like they just feel like the end result is like the sale. They're not really breaking it down too much anymore. You know, they try to keep it very simple. I think that was my experience at Saks. Like, um, you know, it, uh, it, it felt like they wanted to simplify the, the KPI so much, but I believe that KPI like our basket size and all of that. So sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. 
I'm being nosy now and curious who you think gets this right. This mix of the, kind of, I guess, the department store brand or the the kind of a, the the retailer brand, and then all the sub brands of like independent beauty skincare fragrance brands. Um, where's your favorite place to buy beauty? It, it's hard. It's always hard for me to answer this question because I feel like if I wasn't a beauty person, I'd shop in different places for different reasons. But because I'm a beauty person. I kind of just want to go somewhere where I have most of the things that I need. Um, so I I just love going to like a really well-stocked Sephora. So like if there's a good Sephora, I mean Ulta too, but um, I'll go to Ulta for different, for different things. I just feel like at this point, they kind of have everything that everybody needs, you know, like within those two. And I actually like exploring things on my own. Like I don't really need the advisor to help me, you know, kind of like, you know nodding in that way so uh, it's like I'm like don't help me I want to touch everything I know and you know sometimes they try to talk to me and I'm like oh my god I know I love you you're trying to you're trying to give me advice or like sell me all this product but I know I know I'm in the industry so then we start having a conversation about that so then I never get what I really need so um but and and I have to say I mean not to knock anybody at this point but I feel like sometimes the Sephora and the Ultas they're actually stock this podcast is brought to you by Label Sessions, the global platform that connects you to the best advice from the most interesting people. Around the world, we work with brands to connect their people to true leaders, just like the people you hear on this podcast, for live sessions of advice, mentoring, or sometimes to collaborate on ideas. To find out more, visit labelsessions.com and book in for a demo with our team. I want to talk to you about, I guess, the omni-channel experience, because I think it's getting really interesting in beauty with more, I guess innovations around like product choice fit from color matching to I think most beauty website or makeup brands have like a quiz that you have to do and all those things now so more and more people are buying online what do you think this means or the impact I guess of the omni-channel element and the digital buying journey for beauty retailers and also the makeup artists working in retail Quite honestly, it has changed a lot for what it means for the makeup artist working in retail. Um, I think you're looking at a customer that's uh, at least generationally, right? If we're looking, you know, I'm 44. So if you're looking at my generation, which is, I think, what am I an X, right? Like that generation, because their children are essentially schooling them on a daily basis they're getting the knowledge even from home now at this point they're old enough to kind of like know what foundation they are all of that so even when they're shopping if they shop if they shop omni or com it's it's probably more from like a replenishment point of view i doubt they're like just going on like i feel like they're the ones coming in like i wanted to try this new foundation but i don't know what color right whereas that that younger generation they're much more savvy. They're using the tools. They kind of, you know, they shade match. Um, if they use, and I, I, I mean, I've, I've used the shade matching tools as well. Like I actually think I bought last time, probably like an Ilia foundation or something like that. I like to buy like different types of, you know, foundations that I feel like have more of a, an innovative, like uh, technology to them. So like I'll, I'll pick them up um, from time to time. But um, I think, it's they're very easy and they're very intuitive those foundation matchers now so 
I, I was like kind of like biting my tongue, hoping that the foundation would be the right color and it ended up being the right color. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, like that's cool. <laughs> but from like a makeup artistry point of view, like, I mean, like I said, I was a makeup artist. I'm born as a makeup artist. I've done fashion week. I've certified. I've done uh, TV shows, television, um, you know, superstar, whatever. Like I've, I've kind of done it all, right? Body painting, everything. I mean, years ago, you had to be a makeup artist. I don't really, you don't really have to be a makeup artist anymore, you know? Uh, I And I also think it's also because, like, beauty's gotten a little bit um, more friendly, I would say. What do you mean by friendly? The skinification of foundation, you know? Foundation isn't foundation anymore, you know? Foundation has now become skincare. So when I say friendly, it's like, I could actually possibly pick up the wrong color or if I'm just a, if I'm if I am uh, if I'm working for like a makeup brand, let's say I just started working at Chanel, right? I'm now working at Chanel. I um, like more fragrance than beauty, but, you know, I'm working at Chanel or maybe Tom Ford, you know, they they're kind of like those like triple access brands that you really need like a great fragrance background as well as a makeup background. Um, and let's say I'm working there. My customer is coming in and if I if I pick up the wrong, like it doesn't have to be exactly the right color. I'm not saying the color's wrong, but it can I can fall somewhere in the middle because you wouldn't know, you know, the foundation is like just the technology is great. The texture's great. Like it's almost like there's no way I can mess it up in a sense, even if it's the wrong color. So everything is a lot more like friendly and easy. So the formulations are more forgiving. Yeah. So it's interesting then with shade range, because if you, like the Lisa Eldridge foundation is amazing, but it's a bit like um old school MAC foundation that is not forgiving. You have to prep your skin. Otherwise it looks really you dry. You have the right color. Yeah, exactly. It is a really amazing product and it has really amazing hold. By you kind of saying it out loud, it's made me realize like some of the, because of the advances in formulations, there's actually a lot more wiggle room around color matching. So then I guess there's less risk for some of the online yes, purchasing. Think about it. Yes. And think about it too, from a, from like a, a, not a consumer point of view, but actually as a, as a company point of view, like you're, you're the, you know, you're the brand now from a business point of view, am I going to make 20 foundations? Like, is that really financially, fiscally like correct? You know, do I want to do that? You know? Um, if I do do that, um, is it really going to work for everyone? So that's also why you're seeing. And then like, what do I need to do to make that like really work? Like what's the artistry level need to be? Right. So if you look at these, like kind of go to market brands, right. They're small. They got five products. They're, they're category driven. So you're either selling foundation or you're selling concealer first, or you're selling lipstick or you're, it's an eye thing. So that that's why, like, even with Mac, I read this the other day, there were years ago. So pre COVID there was, um, was it, it was like 90% of the skincare, um, 90% of the skincare of the top of the, um, of the beauty business was done by the top 10 brands. Okay. That's a few years ago. Now, only those top 10 brands only have a uh, 60% market share because there's so many more, like there's so many brands. Now. 
right? So because it's like easy for someone to go to, that is the right way to go to market because you need something to be flexible. There's less training. Years ago, Mac was full of trainers. You had a trainer for every 50 advisors, okay? Now you're lucky you probably have a trainer for every 500 advisors. They're training remotely. They don't They don't go into store anymore. Same thing for all the brands. Like no one just like, you know, you're not, these, these smaller brands, they don't have like a training, a training, um, you know, team. No one's going into store telling them where to put the product, how to use it, what brush to use it with. It's either remote or it's just intuition or they're not there yet. So these like go-to-market brands where they're much more flexible, they have a lot more ability to to really like really flourish because they're much more consumer friendly, right? That's really interesting around brand positioning, like product development based on, I guess, a lot of kind of a cultural changes, but also kind of a practical considerations as well. I was really interested in like the training approach because you mentioned like it could be a trainer for every 50 to now to every 500 and 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 a lot of training being remote. How do you like in the beauty retail experience, so you've kind of had your role in MAC and then I'm thinking of your role in SAGS. What's the approach to building, I guess, high performing, like, I guess, creative, like artistry, but retail roles? What's your approach to, like building teams and like really leveraging, I guess, that full spectrum of talent? You do need training, though. You know, um, I know these bigger brands like the L'Oreal's, the Estee Lauder's of the world, um, you know, Cody's of the world. Through the years, their training teams have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. But there are still artistry brands out there. Like you take Charlotte Tilbury. I mean, regardless of the fact that a lot of their leadership team comes from those makeup artistry brands. So they their culture is is really like what Mac used to be, you know, in a sense. So they're still like on the Anastasias of the world, like really those artistry brands, they're still they're still, they still have a very robust training team, right? Um, so they're still training a lot. What I recently had done at SACS and, uh, you know, it was, it was part of my strategy um, recently. We kind of like disrupted our own, um, our own kind of reality in a bit in store because my, my feeling since I had been there was that God, like we're, we're servicing high touch customers, very high price point. Yes. I, you know, I have a book and I'm wonderful and I'm great, but these people that have books and are selling a million dollars in, you know, Lamer creams or whatever, they're just like, they're, they're starting to evolve out. And the new evolution of advisor doesn't have that same it doesn't have the same culture that the, they're they're um, interacting with a different customer. I have much more now. Um, my customer is a lot younger. Um, my customer is a lot more aspirational. Um, they may only be shopping beauty. They may not be shopping sacks total. So it's a different type of interaction that I'm having. But also the market is, um, you know, my my. Open jobs is 15% on a regular basis. I have a higher open job rate. I It's hard, harder and harder for me to get talent. We kind of went into the approach in our strategy last year, like that 
we didn't really want to keep recycling the same beauty advisors over and over, you know, because I seen you would come work for me at Saks, then you'd leave after a year, then you'd go to Bloomingdale's and work, and then you'd leave after a year, and then you'd go to Nordstrom's, and then you'd come back to Saks, and I don't know, you want to make like $5 more than when you left the first time, you know? And I, I just didn't have that in my budget. So we were confronted with a lot of this like kind of competitor um competitor rates right we were the a lot of the competition depend because you know everybody's different like the dillards of the world like it was like during covid dillards finally woke up and and they were like oh my goodness beauty is amazing and we're going to invest you know so you have places like dillards and belk and and these like um southern retailers that are kind of on the you know, they're, they're not, they're not high end, but they're in markets now because of Bloomingdale's closing, Nordstrom's closing, you know, Neiman's closing, that they had the opportunity to gain that customer. So they started putting in like a La Mer shop, a Joe Malone shop, like some of those high end retailers, uh, so some of those high end brands, and they started becoming competition in a sense. So for, for whatever reason, their strategy was, I don't know they were able to pay at a different rate than than we were, right? So what started happening was that um, you started getting this like competitor pay itch issue, but it was even like, it wasn't like we didn't want to pay. It was like, you know, at the end of the of the end of the year, like we have to, we have our own finances to manage as well um, for any retailer. But the discussion was even, okay, there's also not only are we recycling these people, but there's less workers out there on the job market anyway. Like, I mean, we saw that in all industries, right? Like, I, I just keep scratching my head and saying, what are these people doing? <laughs> Nobody wants to come to work anymore. Um, and retail's so fun, but, you know, it's it's also hard too. But Sats was a great place to work. Like, no one was working till 10 p.m. This wasn't like, you know, Macy's. <laughs> We weren't staying open 24 hours during, you know, Christmas. Um, so it was a really great place to work, too. Um, and we really had to put our heads together. And, you know, we it, a couple of things came into play. And, you know, we challenged ourselves on their rates and, and, and we adjusted that. And then something that I felt I believed in really, you know, um, deeply was that we needed to give people a reason to kind of like, come here and and feel that this is a great place to start um their careers and stay um and i just remembered that when i was at mac you know training and development was such it was like it was like an unspoken co um compensation right like oh i work at mac i got trained to do this i got certified to do this like the training like aspect of working at mac cosmetics was so important and when i speak to makeup artists in the industry what they talk about they don't no one talks about their salary because no <laughs> we're not making any money uh, we're talking about the trainings we get the trainings the interactions what we're exposed to like all of that like that's what people really talk about so i said what can we do at Saks that is really going to set us apart from our competitors and really keep people here or if not keep them, what's going to make them want to come here in the first place? Because we were really starting to look at, oh, and we we challenged all of our managers, you know, we want new people. We challenge our recruiters. We don't want, we don't want people in the makeup industry. We want new, new to make, new to, new to sack, new to makeup industry. And we'll train you. 
So that's what we did. We developed a training program. You know, we hired for we hired for for um, for attitude, and we trained for skill. So we started a um, training program where um, we started doing PK bursts three times a week. You know, it helped elevate people. It helped put people like shine light on like a lot of people. Um, it helped change um, uh, the morale in the store and kind of like the openness, you know, because there's a lot of competition. And I guess the interaction as well yes. with like your peers. Um, I think that's lovely. That's a really nice way to kind of a... Uh, um, approach I guess that challenging situation of you need kind of a people in role but actually we want to do something different so I, I love what you said um, Josephine around we want to hire an attitude and train and skill and a way to kind of connect people in I guess what can be quite isolated with different satellites and different vendors in a department store that's a that's amazing um, are there any particular like innovations say maybe like new approaches in beauty and retail you're excited about. And I'm asking this because a while ago, I went to Web Summit earlier um, in, in November 23. And I listened to the, I think she's the Brazilian makeup artist. So she, so she was an influencer, became an influencer on oh. Mary Maria. Mary so Maria. She's, got, okay. um, she's got really iconic like red auburn hair and she's really freckled and she's been doing I think she's probably one of the first like YouTuber makeup people that she's kind of a self-taught and then created her own brand. And um, it was a really interesting talk with her. So Web Summit is this like kind of a tech conference in Lisbon and she's, um, you know, an influencer that's now created her own beauty line. And they, the thing that we, that she talked a lot about was um, live stream and purchase live stream. And it almost feels like QVC for a different generation in a different platform but that type of thing where she's doing her makeup at home and also like launching products and it was just like I thought it was really interesting around the flexibility and the insights that they could tell her what how many things were selling and what to move on to and what not to um and I just thought that's like a bit like QVC but done in a slightly smarter way with an entirely different audience and she said Things like you mentioned earlier around some brands, it's easier to launch direct-to-consumer brands because they do it with less products. So it might be five things in one category. She started with a makeup brush because it had a really long shelf life, and they didn't. And they it was they were self-funding everything, and they didn't know where it was going to go. So she um, and she, I think, runs the business with her husband. They said, "Well, we'll do this," and obviously. It sold out in like, I don't know, like 35 minutes or something like that. But I thought that was a really interesting approach. And now I guess the live stream shopping experience is just like another facet in beauty retail. It is. Um, they've, we've actually done live stream at Saks a few times. Um, we've done it a little bit more during um, during uh, COVID, uh, but they do do it regularly with um, with the dot com channel. Um, and it, it definitely is, um, is something that is, uh, is taking off. In fact, I also, the other day, you know, even with TikTok, like even TikTok selling, I was actually telling my friend actually just started a skincare line here in Italy and I've been helping her with a few things. And I was telling her the other day, I was like, oh, cause we were going to start, um, what are we doing? Oh, she started, we're going to start like on Amazon, like, um, being, having it available to buy on Amazon. But I was like, Oh, have you, have you looked into TikTok shopping yet? And she was like, 
no, they don't have it in Italy yet. So we were looking into it. And because I was reading a few articles that TikTok, sh- the, there's um, brands that have been selling on TikTok have basically had a halo effect in the rest of the retailers just because of the sheer like brand awareness that's happening here. So it it is, there is this kind of like cool, um, uh, like, aspect to the technology we haven't seen it so much in a brick and mortar like i feel like it's hard for us i mean sometimes it's hard for us to even like use some of the technology like to like shop like click and buy like a lot of what happens from stores like send out the email send the customer the information text message or whatever have them click and buy like your storefront and blah 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 it's not as dynamic but i think the retailers have it it's funny because like the individuals or brand are adopting that type of like live shopping but the the retailers still haven't been able to like connect into that type of live shopping environment you know um so i do think it's really interesting but we don't really it's it's not connected to the retailer end but I think as a brand, there definitely are positives to being able to connect, connect to your audience in that way. I mean, even Dr. Sturm did it. You know, I think from a retailer end, the way Dr. Sturm does it, it's more from an experiential like end in the in in um on the brick and mortar end. You know, that's not so digital. Um, I love what she's been doing. Like you asked me what I what I like about like new technology. Like I love what she's been doing like have you seen the freeze like pop-ups that she's been doing i love them i think they're so cool because you get into this whole like wellness space it becomes and you're not anymore like just buying uh, a skincare you're now buying like the actual um kind of a lifestyle right so and things that you don't even realize you need right like it's vitamins it's juice it's like anti-inflammatory this so Oh, there's a light, you know, like, I don't know. What is that? And, and it's like all of it. So you're, you're, you're getting this whole experience. So that I like when I, I, when I'm starting to see that type of um, interaction with product, it makes it like come to life a little more. I'm excited about those types of things. Um, and I think brands should start thinking about that type of interaction with the customer more. So I'm just going to do maybe like one or two quick fire questions. Um, Favorite beauty and skincare product? Pick one. Favorite beauty product is the Charlotte Tilbury Airbrush Filter um, Powder. And then skincare, I do love the um, Chanel Sublimage Mask. In another life, what would your career be? In In another life, my career would be, I would probably be a chef. If animals could talk, what species do you think would be the rudest? Cat. Okay, last one. On a scale of one to ten... Josephine, how weird are you? On a scare of one to ten, how weird am I? Maybe like fives. Not really that weird. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. That was a pleasure to kind of explore kind of the world of, of, of beauty, innovation and retail. Thank you so much. Thank you. So concludes another episode of Label Sessions Presents. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast nowhere at your platform of choice. And of course, start your journey today with us at labelsessions.com.